Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Adam Ludgate. Adam is a technical leader who is involved in the startup tech community and is enticed by new and innovative ways of solving problems with technology. He has worked previously with the likes of IBM Canada, AOL UK, tech startups in London's Silicon Roundabout, as well as in a variety of oil and gas software firms in various software development and leadership capacities. We're so happy to have Adam back in the hosting chair. And what a guest with Christina Milky. Adam, the mic is yours. Hi, I'm Adam Ludgate, and on today's episode of the Litters, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, I am speaking with Christina Milky. Christina has a long history in the technology sector in Alberta, being one of the co-founders of Valhalla Private Capital, board of directors of NACO, worked at Investopedia, and currently is a general partner at Sprout Fund and works very closely with GrowthX. You're seeing a long, long and impressive track record of tech in Alberta. Welcome to the show. Hi, nice to see you, Adam. So I kind of gave you a little bit of an introduction there, but maybe you can just quickly give a brief overview of your career, what your background is, how you ended up in the technology sector in Alberta. Sure. Well, first of all, I didn't start out in technology. I'm a chartered accountant or a CPA. Um, it's been a little bit of a windy road to get to where I am today and not a road that was planned by any means. Um, if you would have said to me 15 years ago that I would be a fund manager, um, I probably would have shook my head and said, who are you talking to? Because um, that certainly wasn't even um, a word in my vocabulary. But here I am. So I, 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 uh, I started off in your typical finance role, uh, roles after getting out of uh, CPA school, so to speak. And um, my last finance role was uh, at, an, at uh, Intuit, where I was uh, running the finance team here for Intuit Canada. And that was where I really got my first view and experience in working for a really progressive tech company. Um, and a lot of interesting things about, um, you know, high performing teams, um, being very focused on the customer, being very focused on the employee experience as well. And um, it just really intrigued me and set me on a path to ensuring that uh, the only places I ever wanted to work after that was in the technology businesses. So I left from there and um, I really wanted to not run the finance team. I wanted to own a P&L. So I went from there to Investopedia uh, when the original co-founders um, had sold it to Forbes and they uh, had a post-acquisition contract to s- stick around for a period of time. And then after they left, um, I came in, they brought me in, and I took over the business and reported into the Forbes family. And that was a very interesting experience as well. Um, and I stayed around there um, well um, for about the first 18 months. And then I got a call from Tim Forbes, who informed me that the board had decided that they wanted to sell Investopedia. And so my job was going to be to pitch it to the prospective buyers. Um, of which I informed him that this was not something I'd ever done, and I was a bit uh, apprehensive about doing it. But he assured me that when I was all when it was all finished, that I'd come back to him and say, "Tim, this was the best and most fun thing I've ever done in my career." Um, and at the end of it, he was absolutely right. I had a great time. Um, we pitched it to six companies, 
um, that had been um, vetted um, by a boutique M&A firm in Manhattan. And so it was a very intense but uh, interesting experience. And the company ultimately did get sold. I had to stick around after that for a period of time. But it was a, a really amazing experience. And it really uh, put me in a position to really understand you know, what it's like to sell a business or to get acquired, to go in and have to pitch your business and try and uh, get someone really interested to pay the highest price that makes sense um, for the business. So that was a really great experience. After that, I left um, after my period of time and um, I was uh, had become an angel investor with, at the time was VA Angels. And that was run by Randy Thompson. And um, after I left Investopedia, we chatted about maybe there was a way that we could collaborate a little bit more. And he came up with the idea of Valhalla. So Valhalla was co-founded by, there's nine of us that co-founded Valhalla. Um, so we did that and I ran the angel um, team that we had expanded from two chapters in Calgary and Edmonton. And we expanded into BC, Vancouver and Kelowna. And then as uh, just before I exited, uh, we had opened up um, Saskatoon and Regina as well. So also a really interesting experience. I learned a ton of stuff, met a lot of people, um, got to go on some amazing trips, some great conferences. And someone I knew in the ecosystem in Edmonton had approached me and asked me what I thought about starting a fund. Again, not something that I had thought of first, but I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe that sounds interesting. And so um, there was four of us that uh, thought we'd start what we called a pilot fund where we would raise about a million dollars. And uh, with that, we could figure out a few things like, you know, what what would be our investment thesis? We weren't firm on what that would be. And how to manage a fund. None of us had done that. We were all angel investors. Kind of deal flow could we get? And ideally, we wanted to see if we could get some non-tech investors. So folks that, you know, high net worth individuals in Alberta that had made their money in oil and gas or real estate and see if we could get them interested in the tech space and put their money into technology companies. And so we did that. And uh, the raising of that money was was pretty easy. Um, it was only a million dollars. So it was uh, in increments of 20K. And so we were able to raise the money rather quickly, actually, a lot faster than we thought. Um, but we thought it would be the inverse. We thought, look, it's going to be a while to raise the money. It would be really easy to spend it. But what happened was the opposite. It was really easy to raise that first million. And it was um, a lot more challenging to spend the money than we had ever anticipated. And I think it's because we realized um, the weight and the burden of having other people's money that you're spending. And so um, that became uh, a real a realization for us about the fiduciary responsibility we had and that we had to do a good job. So pa- fast forward from there, we, we, uh, we started, uh, after we spent the money in fund one, uh, two of us went on and uh, we now have fund two, which is just um, around 13 million. That was a different challenge altogether. <laughs> okay. Definitely want to hear more about that. Actually, just to back up a little bit, you talked about Intuit. If I remember correctly, that one of the key case studies that was done in the Lean Startup book, for people who have read the Lean Startup, was Intuit. Um, I think they talked about they had kind of pioneered um, some of this new agile methodologies. And I think you would have been in the company around that time that happened, right? I don't know what time that happened then specifically. Do you know what years you're talking about? Or? No, I don't. I, mean, I, was there uh, from, there's a... I was there in 2005, so it was a while ago now. And Anyways, again, I... I I wasn't in the development team, right? So, right. It was a it was an approach that they talked about in the book because one of the one of the old mistakes that a lot of the software companies had made back in those days was 
huge pieces of work and Intuit had fallen victim to that where they would work for six months and then they would do a release and it would be really high stress and really high pressure. And they basically pushed that aside and started with a high cadence release cycle, which became, you know, kind of the main, one of the major case studies that was highlighted in that, that lean startup book. So, um, yeah, well, Intuit was a pretty progressive company. I am sure they still are. Um, it was an amazing place to work and to be in the leadership team. Um, where they really invested in their employees and really, really had high expectations of everybody. So it was the pinnacle of a high-performing team for sure. Cool. So Sprout Fund, just going back to that, you were talking about you raised your second, your second round now. So let's, let's dive in there a little bit now. Like, What is the portfolio looking like? Are you guys mostly in Alberta? How, what's that been like managing that side of the portfolio, raising that money, being accountable for that kind of money? And obviously, investing that kind of money, like tell us about your experience. That's a significant responsibility. It is um, raising the money. Uh, so we started raising the money in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, if I have any advice for any emerging fund managers, is don't raise a fund in the middle of a pandemic. You know, you can't meet people in person. You're on a Zoom call with people, and some of them you may know, or they're referrals from people that you know, but. Often they're people that you've never met face to face and you're sitting on a Zoom call and you're saying, hey, how would you like to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and invest it in my fund? Um, it's not an easy, it's not an easy ask, that's for sure. And so um, I would say that raising money is, is very challenging, particularly when you're an emerging fund manager and you don't have a, a track record of uh, significant exits behind you. And we didn't. In our first fund, we still have the 10 companies we invested in. We still have the 10 companies percolating away. So um, we didn't have any track record yet from our first pilot fund. And so it was truly uh, a matter of, I would say, running a very tight sales process, no different than you know a founder is looking for customers. We were doing the same thing. We were systematically you know, looking for customers, high net worth individuals you know, that we believed would have... Um, would have interest in investing in the tech sector. They were often uh, folks that we knew or someone knew us that knew them and did the introduction. So personal uh, personal referrals and our personal reputations were really critical in raising this fund. I can't stress that enough. Another great reason why you should never burn bridges behind you uh, because you know those kinds of things matter when you get to this stage where you're trying to do something like this. Um, and so it took a long time to raise the fund. And we actually, you know, had done a model where we had thought about, you know, what's the minimum fund size? And, you know, like, like founders, you know, at the beginning, you're like, yeah, we're going to raise a $25 million fund. And then you start going out there and you start getting a lot of no's. All of a sudden, uh, after months and months of, you know, you get some yeses, but you certainly aren't getting the a number of yeses that you're hoping for. We started doubting whether we could raise this fund to the minimum level that we wanted to. Um, and so, which was really, um, I'd say demoralizing because we'd worked really hard and we'd put together, you know, and spent the money to get all the documentation in place from the lawyer. So we knew that there was this initial upfront investment that we would never recover. Um, but we were lucky in that, you know, if one of us was having a bad day, maybe the other one got a, got a yes or got a win. And so it helped keep the other person um, uplifted a little bit. Um, we were very fortunate that we had some friendly relationships with Alberta Enterprise, AEC, 
And, um, you know, Christina and I had talked and they had indicated that they were considering uh, adding in some a new strategy into their overall strategic plan. And that was to support strategic or emerging fund managers and said, you know, if you guys can get to a certain amount, providing you get successfully through our due diligence process, we would love to consider supporting you as our kind of guinea pig. But, but we'd have to be willing to be the guinea pig and go through the process with them as well. And so, um, but we did have a minimum amount we had to hit and we weren't getting there. So we didn't know if we'd actually make that minimum amount. Needless to say, we did make it, obviously, but it was a long time, uh, a lot longer than we thought. Um, so we did a first close and we did the first close at uh, just a little over or just slightly under 10 million. I think it was like 9.75 million or something like that. But we were confident we would get to the $10 million mark. And so after that, uh, we started working with uh, AEC and going through their due diligence process. And, you know, if any emerging fund managers are listening to this and they're thinking about going to an institutional investor, it is a much different ballgame to get institutional investors into your fund than uh, high net worth individuals or even family offices. The due diligence process is long. It's exhaustive. Um, it, it took months and months of work to get done. And the formalization of processes and policies within our fund had to take place uh, in order for us to even start having the conversation with AEC. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And it's certainly something to think about. And, you know, I often run into uh, younger people than me, let's just say, or who are telling me that they're going to raise a fund and they're going to get AEC as an investor. And I have to chuckle a little bit because it's just never as easy as um, you'd hope it would be. And I, presumably, if you're the first company that AEC has done this with, and I don't know how many they have done further to this, if any at all, uh, they would want to see a successful track record with this type of investment before they would well, pursue I, growth, right? Right. Again, given that you know um, we're called an emerging fund manager or fund managers, and we're called a micro fund because we're under their typical $25 million limit that they would invest in. You know, they, they realized that, you know, we're not going to have uh, a fund previous to this one that would have a bunch of successful exits. So what they did look at a lot was our backgrounds as, as investors personally, individually. And so that became important as well. So again, um, if you think that you're going to be uh, not having any experience in investing at all and then going and trying to get an institutional investor to invest in you as an emerging fund manager, it's probably worth spending some time um, looking at what that kind of process would look like for yourself and considering the timing. Maybe it's not your first fund. Maybe you're better off waiting for a second fund. I don't see myself ever going into that. It's, it stresses <laughs> me out too much. It, it was it was high pressure for sure, and it was you know during that time you're not getting paid because there's no fund to get paid. There's no management fees. You're doing this. It took us, you know, I think at least a year to raise this money. We had made an investment, as I said, into all the legal documents and we're not getting paid and you spend all your time selling. That's all you're doing is selling all the time. Yeah. And what's me, the pressure is more, I mean, maybe I misread it, but for me, the pressure is more after the fact because now you're holding this bag and you've got to make sure that you don't, that you do the right thing with it. That's, that's very all the stressful. time. Yeah. All the time, which is why, you know, due diligence for, for your investment process becomes really critical. And having a very, very clear investment thesis also becomes really important. I, d I didn't really respect or understand 
how important that was in our first fund. Um, I was starting to learn by the time it was done, but it just it just was a great um, opportunity to learn about it uh, in a smaller fund so that when you get to your bigger fund, you can be very, very clear on what doesn't fit for sure into your investment thesis. Right. So what is uh, what does an investment thesis and, and due diligence look like for, you know, a micro fund like yours? You know, presumably you have less resources at your disposal as compared to like large oh, venture capital, right? So that means that you have less, less time and less money to do, you know, deep due diligence. What does it look like? Well, there's, there's two partners, so two GPs in this fund, myself and my partner, Shahil Huda. And so that means we can only do due diligence on no more than two companies at once. Um, just, you know, just that's just a, a fact of time um, available. Um, and so, because we also administer the fund as well. And so, um, and, and then just to add to that, I would never, uh, we would never be able to have accommodated a rolling close or multiple rolling closes. It's just raising money and investing and administering the fund at the same time would be just too much for a small team like ours. So having a, having a, we did a first close and a second close, and then we stopped raising money because we needed to focus on spending the money. And so, um, you know, our investment thesis is, is pretty clear to, to us. Um, you know, we, we invest in B2B SaaS companies. We stay away from companies that have a lot of hardware. If there's a small hardware component to the B2B SaaS component, we might consider it, but it would have to be a very small um, part of the revenue. Um, we don't you know. We don't look at B2C at all. Um, we don't look at any kinds of services type business like consulting companies or anything like that. So we're very, very clear on what our investment thesis is. Okay, cool. Well, brings me to a good point here because I was... One of the reasons I wanted to have the conversation with you is because you have a, you know, lengthy and impressive track record in Alberta Tech. And so what I wanted to kind of do was give people a bit of a bit of an overview of, you know, past, present and future. So unique view of it. I think you're one of the original members of the A100 as well. You know, you've kind of all the all the big names that, that we kind of know in Alberta seems that you've been a part of in some in some way or another or touched. And so kind of curious to, you know, dive into what what the Sprout Fund has today and what you see currently today in the market, but kind of going back, back, what, what did things look like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago? What are, you know, and what are things like today from your chair with respect to the fund and other stuff you're involved in, including GrowthX, which I, we can also talk about. And then, you know, what do you see for the future? So that's, that's kind of a long-winded question, but you can take it in pieces. Yeah. Okay. Let's see if we can break it up into some chunks, maybe. So, you know, I only started investing um, as an angel investor. It might have been like 20, you know, 2010 or something like that. So it really hasn't been that long relative to many other uh, investors that are out there. Luckily, my CEA background was, it, it did give me a great foundational amount of knowledge about, you know, performing due diligence, um, which was, has always, you know, been very helpful. I invested probably in like, I don't know, quite a few companies as an angel investor right at the beginning, uh, certainly through VA Angels. And I was like, a, I was like a kid in a candy store, like someone would come up and pitch and they tell this amazing story. And it was so hard not to be compelled by them and, and to feel that, you know, their ambition and that they really believe that they were going to change the world with whatever it was that they were building and to not want to be part of that. And I had to quickly rein myself in and realize I can't invest in every company just because it's a great story. And by the way, some company, some founders tell a great story, may not have a great business. And, you know, some founders aren't great at telling their story, but have an amazing business. So you learn that as well. But, 
so, you know, I made some, some, uh, I'd say probably rookie, rookie moves at the beginning, you know, investing in a company where, um, I didn't do my, my own enough due diligence, followed along with other people. You get that FOMO and, uh, and, you know, then lost my money. You know, that was my own, my own error and judgment. Um, but you know, you learn from that pretty quickly. We luckily that hasn't happened in my funds. Uh, I learned before I started becoming a fund manager, those, those lessons. So that's a good thing. But today our portfolio, um, is interesting. We have, we're in eight companies at the moment. Of those eight companies, uh, we only have one from Alberta. We have six from BC and one from Halifax. We're about to make an announcement. Uh, it, the deal's done, but we just uh, haven't formalized the signing off of things yet. But we'll be making an announcement shortly about another company headquartered in Alberta, but has an office, or, sorry, headquartered in Montreal, but has an office in Alberta. And we are, um, you know, we have a few other deals in our pipeline that we're really interested in, but typically the companies we've invested in are either property tech, restaurant tech. We're in a sort of a wellness tech company. I'm sure I'm, I'm missing a couple at the, off the top of my head. I should know them all, but, um, we, we typically have stayed away from, um, any kind of devices. As I said, those are hardware plays. We don't know a lot about medical stuff. So we stay away from medical. We get nowhere near pharma because we know nothing about that kind of stuff. And so we try to really stick to things, uh, business models that we can understand from our own personal um, work experiences and where we can help to add value. The offer we make to the founders that we invest in is, you know, we are willing to be not just financial contributors to your business, but if you need any kind of coaching, mentorship, advice, um, we're there to help them with that as well. And so um, if we don't understand your business, then it's hard for us to make an assessment to make the investment. And then we also know we can't add any value as well. So we, like I said, stick to the things that we really understand, and that's B2B SaaS. Okay. And um, so, and, and most of our deal flow, or a lot of our deal flow is coming from either other funds like ours um, in the ecosystem that are looking, you know, most funds of our size don't take up a whole round. So they're looking to, to fill up a round. And we have lots of friendly funds out there that we share information amongst ourselves. Um, which is, you know, something that founders need to know and understand as well is that as fund managers, we do talk amongst ourselves um, and share our views about companies and founders. So um, another really great reason to always keep that in mind as well. A good, good tip for anyone out there who's trying to <laughs> raise mm -hmm. money or, or keep their investors happy. So, but more, more broadly, outside of your fund, you know, what have you, how have you seen the landscape change, right? Like we're you know, you're talking about being an early stage angel investor, um, and then and, and and taking that experience and maybe making a couple of bad investments in FOMO. But you know, what what was the landscape like then compared to now in terms of opportunity, in terms of what the quality of the founders were, and how how the stuff has been has evolved over time, and kind of where do you see it going? Um, yeah. So, well, first of all, I, when I say quality of the founders, I I really want to be careful about that because you know. Being a successful founder, it's not just a matter of who you are, but it's, sometimes it's timing and luck. Totally. You know, did you launch your product at the right time when the market was ready for your product? And so you could be a great founder, but to have some bad timing or bad luck. And I don't want that to be a label on somebody as a bad founder because of that. Maybe they were ahead of their time almost, launched a product that the world wasn't quite ready for. 
Um, and so I would say, you know, the quality of the founders, you know, I'm seeing there's a lot more focus on entrepreneurship in the post-secondary institutions, even in, in earlier than that in, in normal, you know, K to 12, there's talk of entrepreneurship. It's become more mainstream. And I think there's, um, there's a feeling out there that, you know, I think more people think about being an entrepreneur because they have this ideal that, you know, they can manage their life and, you know, uh, have control of their, of their work situation. And you can, but to get to that point, there's a lot of hard work, a lot of heavy lifting and many months or, or years of not really getting paid and a very, very windy road to get there. And so although we've made it this, uh, we, we, we talk about all the glorious exits that are out there that we all know about, but there's lots of companies that haven't made it and lots of founders that have lots of great stories and battle scars to share. And I wish that some of those founders would get out and talk more often because I think that would really help in setting a more realistic stage or a picture for um, new founders that are coming in. Yeah. Um, and then, so I, I guess the, uh, the kind of in, in relation to that is, is you know, you, the way you and I first met. Um, and we discovered uh, discovered along the way that we probably know you know several hundred people in common, which is funny. But um, <laughs> at least <laughs> we uh, we connected through the through the GrowthX program, which I was um, you know fortunate enough to be to become a part of that program through the one of the startups that I'm I founded and working on right now. And and you're you've been kind enough to work with us and and provide some advice um, and some guidance. And that was through the GrowthX program and. Uh, sponsored by Albert, Albert Innovates, and I I didn't know a whole lot about the program, and and after having gone through it, you know, found a tremendous amount of value, and I've you know I've said to multiple people that I feel that it, it should be mandatory for for any startup that that accepts funding from Albert Innovates, they should have to um, they should have to participate in this program because it really helps you hone and and you know try and use your resources as as efficiently as possible. So you know you are a mentor um, in GrowthX. How did you get involved with that, and how much of that time of your time does it take? And you know, tell us about what what that looks like. Yeah, GrowthX is a really great model. That you know, they have a very simplistic and elegant solution. And when you go through the program at the end of it, if you were to go back and and look at you know where you started and where you ended, and and the you know the templates and things they give you to work on, um, you you realize that it, it's 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 pretty simple. The work to get it done is the hard part, and so you know. If as an investor, I would say, you know, your most successful way to raise capital is from revenue and from customers. And so I don't, I always am a little bit amazed when I meet founders that spend all their time trying to raise capital from investors instead of trying to get customers for their product. Why wouldn't you want to get more customers? That gives you full control of your company when, you know, you're not having to deal with uh, investor capital, you're dealing with customer capital. It not only, you know, fills up your bank account, um, it gets your product out to the world, but it makes it so much easier if you do need to raise investor capital when you have that revenue coming in and good quality revenue. You know, if you can do you know great subscriptions with low churn, you know that's that's the ideal place to be. And so, you know, what GrowthX really does is it teaches you how to think about a pipeline, how to think about who your you know ideal customer profile is, and to take you down to the very basics so that you can realize and learn as the founder of your company, how to sell to your customers. Because if, if you have a hard time selling, how do you think you're going to bring in a salesperson and think they're going to do selling your product? You know your product better than anybody, but yet you somehow think you're going to bring in an external resource to sell your product and they're going to do better um, at it or be successful at it. 
So teaching you how to sell your own products so that you understand, you know, what the objections might be, or maybe you're not focusing on the right customer segment or whatever it is. These are all things that you really need to learn so that you can figure out whether you truly are going to have a viable business. And so what I love about GrowthX is that, you know, it's, it's over approximately four months in time. And um, you go through as, as a mentor, I go through step by step with the cohort that I'm, I'm given along the way. And for me, as, an, as a GP and a fund, one of the reasons I love to do it is I get to do due diligence in real time with my cohort. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. Have you ever invested in one of your GrowthX um, cohort members? I, I have not. not yet. Nope, I have not yet. Well, some of them don't fit my investment thesis, and that's okay. I still want to help them in GrowthX. Right. Um, but no, I mean, my partner, Shahil, is also one of the mentors or coaches in 500 Global for the same reason. Like We get access to some great companies through these programs, and we get to work with them and really get to know the founders. And you know, when you invest in an in a early-stage company who doesn't have a long track record behind them, what really matters is the team. Yeah. So being able to work with that team and, and seeing, you know, is the team keeping up with the work? Are they committed to doing the work in the program? You know, besides the obvious, do they fit my investment thesis? But getting a really good sense um, on what type of founders they are as well. Yeah. It's that- and, and make no mistake, I've had other investors reach out to me because they know I'm a mentor for a company that they're looking at. And I'm a mentor for them in GrowthX. Oh. And they reach out to me to ask me what my experience is with those companies. All right. As I mentioned, we talk amongst ourselves, right? <laughs> so these things are not hard to find out. All right. Well, then we need we need to make this uh, we need to make this conversation mandatory. Listening for GrowthX participants as well. I think <laughs> <laughs> I got involved with them because I think when they first came to Alberta through Alberta Innovates, they did their first pilot um, uh, cohort, I guess, and they brought in you know uh, they brought in a mentor for every company. Um, and then they saw how that ran. And then I think what they did after that is they scaled it back. And they uh, right now, there's only three three or four mentors now in the program. So I've been with them from the beginning. And I really, really have a lot of respect for what they've built. And they're really great founders themselves of, the, of their company. So they've been amazing to work with, uh, Jeanette and Andrew and Max. Yeah. And, and you got involved really just because it's something you're passionate about, I guess, mentoring founders and startups. And- I do lots of mentoring. I mean, I mean, I'm one of the founding mentors in, in the venture VMS program here in Edmonton. I sat on the board for almost seven years. I just came off the board in December. I I do I'm a mentor with it's called Edmonton Women in Finance. I do lots of mentoring because I I like to give back. I like to help people. And I'd like to, you know, I want to see Alberta win. I want to see Canada win. Yeah. So and on that, what do you think about so what do you think about opportunities in Alberta right now, tech startups that are out there right now versus the rest of Canada is as Alberta, you know, we're all excited about when I say we're all I'm talking about people who are, you know, probably listeners of the Rainforest podcast and, and big tech community in Alberta, we're all kind of very feeling bullish and excited about about this state of things right now. So what do you see, Alberta and the rest of the Canada? Yeah, I think, you know, we definitely have some momentum. I mean, the numbers are showing us that there's momentum growing in this province. Calgary's on fire for sure. Um, it's been really great to see the momentum and the amount of resources being put um, from various levels of government to trying to support and encourage and, and help grow the tech sector here in Alberta. And that's from all levels of government um, here. I think that that speaks volumes. I mean, 
certainly helping diversify our economy here in Alberta. Um, you know, I have uh, three kids and I've really encouraged um, them to work in the tech sector if they can, because it's lucrative. It's, it's uh, progressive thinking. It's where things are going. And it's a great place to meet lots of people. I mean, I find the tech ecosystem here in Alberta extremely welcoming and friendly and supportive. And I love that, you know, you can, you can walk into a, you know, a TNT event and not know anybody and walk out with a whole bunch of friends as an example, or you can go to ventures every year, you know, that's a 4,000 or 3,000 person conference and meet so many great people because everybody wants to be there to help each other and, and people will make connections and you just have to ask sometimes and people will help you. And so I think the sector here in Alberta is really, really encouraging. Now I say that, but I just finished saying to you a few minutes ago that we only have one Alberta company in our portfolio. So I, I would like to... Two to be two. Maybe two. Yeah. So I, I'd really two like ish. to uh, address that because, you know, it's funny in Alberta, you know, we're, we're surrounded by provinces on either side of us that have a um, investor tax credit and we don't. And so, you know, in, a, in BC, there's a 30% investor tax credit and in Saskatchewan, it's 45% and we have nothing. And so, you know, those companies in BC, they're really focused on pitching their companies to BC investors because those investors right away get 30% discount, so to speak, um, as soon as they make the investment. Um, we invest in BC companies without that 30% because we're Alberta investors, but we do it because we're seeing better value for money. Um, from those companies. When, and what I mean by that is the traction that they have relative uh, and the quality of the revenue relative to their valuations is uh, more attractive to us than what we've seen in a lot of Alberta companies. And I'm, I'm generalizing, so I don't want to offend anybody here, but I, you know, when, when prices and valuations started coming down, they weren't coming down what, to what we expected as investors in Alberta. And we still are seeing some really, really expensive companies relative to traction in Alberta. And so we want to find more companies to invest in Alberta. We're always talking to founders in Alberta. But again, they have to fit our investment thesis. They have to be a great team. They have to be, you know, great uh, valuation relative to traction. All of those, all of the things that matter to us when we do due diligence. And so I'm really hopeful that we're going to find more. Um, Alberta companies, I think that we're starting to see more movement on valuations here in Alberta. And I think there's just, uh, you know, it takes years for all that support that's kicked in to really start manifesting into great companies, great founders. And I think we're starting to see that coming now. Well, that's good. I, I didn't know about the investor tax credit. That seems like something we ought to uh, get aligned with the other provinces on. I mean, mm. if especially if I, I, I don't know what... Well, we did have it briefly. Okay. Um, and if evaluations are still overly high, you know, at least that credit might help reduce the burden in the other provinces and let you take a bit of risk. Not that, I mean, if the valuation is wrong, the valuation is wrong. We shouldn't invest in the outlandish valuation, but, um, you know, maybe it does help, you know, reduce that risk, lower the risk a bit. Yeah. And I mean, don't forget, you know, valuations is, you know, at an early stage company is personal taste, right? So. Sure. There's no science behind valuations at an early stage company. Um, you can the the best way we can evaluate is our, based on our experience and what we're seeing in the market from all the other companies that we're looking at all the time. So you know because we invest not just in Alberta, like some funds only invest in Alberta, and that's 
that's their geographical target area. And those are the companies they talk to. For us, we can talk to companies across Canada. We've tried to focus on Western Canada, but there's nothing that limits us from, you know, investing outside of Western Canada either. We just don't invest in the U.S. So we do get exposed to a lot of companies and we can, you know, compare um, to other companies. Yeah. Okay. And are they like, other than this investor tax credit, are you, sounds like you're pretty keen on um, all the support that's been provided by every level of government in Alberta. Absolutely. Is there any other uh, thoughts and ideas and policies or things that you might recommend or hope to see that we could, uh, that would make things better for everybody? Um, well, I mean, I was a proponent of the investor tax credit. I understand our current um, provincial government is not a fan of it. And so um, they have done some other things that have been helpful with tax credits for some of the founders. Shred, of course, which is federal, has been very critical for helping develop innovation here in Canada. I really hope that if they make any changes, it's to improve it. I don't know what those changes would be, but um, I hope they don't ever think about taking it away. I just think that would set back Canadian companies dramatically because a lot of early stage companies that are developing technology really rely on it. Um, you know, NRC IROP mm-hmm. has also been great for helping support the the compensation going to some of the development work that's going on as well. So there's a lot of things around that that I think are really great. I'm not a policy person at all, so I, I don't think I'm the best person to answer that question. I don't know what's in the works everywhere, but, you know, there are some some uh, great great organizations out there like Canadian Council of Innovators that is doing great work around um, looking at, you know, what kind of policies and where they can support. They were very helpful in the Alberta issue with APEGA on the on the title of uh, software engineer, which I was one of the first people to sign that that, uh, that letter that went because I was, to me, that was just crazy that that became an issue. Yeah. Why would we want to have something like that deter us from a, being able to attract great, great people to the jobs that we have here? That would be, I really hope the Alberta government, you know, sticks with that and it keeps us on track from that, um, from that going back to a peg. I know a peg is appealing, so we'll see what happens. But yeah, so I, I think that we're seeing, you know, again, a lot of hype around AI. Uh, I think Amy's been incredibly helpful um, in with the AI space in Alberta and in Canada. So I think, you know, we're going to keep seeing more AI stuff coming. The The issue as an investor is trying to make sure when people say they have uh, AI is the true AI or, or companies that... You know, we've actually had the question and, and they've said, well, we don't have AI yet, but we're going to get AI. But they pitch themselves as an AI company, right? And you're like, okay, that's not cool. Like, let's not do that, right? Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, that, there is hype around AI. So it's, you know, sifting through that, making sure if you're, you know, that you can validate what you need to validate as an investor. And then, you know, I, I, I like first-time founders as much as I like, you know, second and third-time founders are great. You, you know, tends to de-risk the deal, but you know, we all started at first time at something. And so, you know, I, I think if you meet good first time founders and you think they got, you know, the backbone to do it and um, they're great at, you know, taking feedback and evaluating as objectively as possible what things are working or not working, I think they're worth taking a bet on as well. Yeah. So the more that we can encourage people to be first time founders and and support them, I mean it does take a village to raise a startup company. Um, and so the more folks out there that are supporting, mentoring, guiding, uh, more programs out there, um, certainly, you know, like I said, Alberta Innovates, you know, through Plug and Play, through GrowthX, through um, 500 Global, 
through the Canadian Wellness Accelerator. They're doing lots of great support there. So we're seeing lots of interesting companies in this province because of that. Okay, sounds positive. Sounds like you wouldn't make a lot of changes. That's good. No, I, I, I'm, 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 uh, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about where we're going. I think, you know, as an investor with with capital to, to deploy right now, um, we're feeling very, very excited about the time frame. There's been, you know, this this uh, reset on valuations that I think is going to work in our favor. Actually, as an investor, we have capital deploy at the right time when companies are not overhyped. Um, and, you know, this this craziness where there wasn't even due diligence being done. Everyone just needed to get in the deal. Yeah. Those days are done. And I'm very thankful for that as an investor. That means we can take the time to do the right amount of due diligence and make sure that we're making the best decisions for our investors, or our limited partners that we can. Yeah, I've heard multiple, um, multiple statements from investments, VCs and other type groups uh, saying that the current vintage of startups is going to be one of the best, if not the best ever vintage. Yeah, of technology we feel startups. the same. Yeah, yeah, we feel exactly the same. So we we feel like we we kind of you know timing and luck, right? But but the, although it was really difficult to raise this to you know just to take it back to the beginning, it was really difficult to raise this fund during the pandemic. But it did create this reset on the on the uh, funding stage for founders, which then ultimately worked out quite well for when we actually closed our fund and we're and we are now ready to deploy the capital. We're only. I don't know, a year and a half into deployment. So um, we've got another three and a half years to spend um, our capital. So we're pretty excited about it. Okay, cool. Well, uh, that's great. I think um, that was all, all the things I wanted to chat with you, Christine. Anything else you want to you talk about today before we wrap it up? No, I just, you know, I would say, you know, a couple tips for founders. Remember that uh, fund managers have also gone through the process of raising capital. So if you have any inclination in your head to think that we don't understand, I would like to say that you're wrong. Uh, we absolutely understand the challenges of raising capital. Um, I'd also, you know, another great tip is I, I like to stand on my soapbox and, and talk about financial illiteracy in this province for founders. We need a lot of founders that don't have some basic fundamental financial knowledge. And if you're going to start raising capital and talking to sophisticated investors, you're not speaking the same language because you don't have that, uh, you don't know that language. Uh, I highly suggest you spend as much time learning and understanding the basic fundamentals that you need to from a financing perspective before you start having those, um, those conversations. And accelerators would be the best place to go to learn that or where would they be the best place to learn that stuff? Oh, there's accelerators, there's lots of mentors, there's people out there that you can just simply say, hey, would, would you have a conversation with sure. me? I mean, I have many conversations with founders that I don't have, you know, any formal relationship with, but they want to have a coffee with me to pick my brain about something. I'm happy to do that. And I think a lot of people are. You just have to ask. Yeah. Well, I'm sure all the founders listening will appreciate that advice. Thanks, Christina. Yeah, my pleasure. Appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by New Idea Machine. NIM helps new software developers, UI UX designers, and product managers gain mentored, hands-on industry experience. And at the same time, we provide companies with risk-free tech talent. Definitely a win-win-win situation. 
Visit newideamachine.com for more information. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.